Welcome to episode 3 of Chasing Majors. In episode 2, Tiger Woods' former caddy Steve Williams gave us a front row seat to Tiger's earth-shattering victory at the 2000 US Open at Pebble Beach. Because Tiger had already won the 97 Masters and the 99 PGA Championship, Tiger's US Open win had set up his storybook chance to complete the career Grand Slam if he were able to win the Open Championship at St Andrews in Scotland. In this episode, Steve takes us back to the week of the 2000 Open at St Andrews when Tiger cemented his place among golf immortality at the home of the sport. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company. So Steve, welcome to episode 3 of Chasing Majors and this is the 2000 Open Championship at St Andrews, the home of golf, where Tiger famously captured the career Grand Slam by collecting all four different major championships in his career. And, and what about you Steve, as a caddy it must be a huge feather in your cap to win the Open at St Andrews and I believe you told me off air that you had this dream of winning the Open at St Andrews. And it was actually based on one of your very good friends, Fanny Sunison, who used to caddy for Nick Faldo, Sir Nick Faldo. Can you tell us a little bit about how she inspired you to one day win the Open as a caddy at St. Andrews? Yeah, Fanny and I, like, we shared houses at major championships for many years. And in 1990, when Nick won the Open Championship at St. Andrews, um, I was caddying for Raymond Floyd. And, and I followed uh, Fanny and Nick up the 18th hole there. And it was just the most amazing scene that I'd ever witnessed, even though, you know, I wasn't caddying or anything in, in the group, but just the atmosphere and seeing the electricity and the fans of saluting a champion uh, on that great amphitheater that surrounds the 18th at St. Andrews with the clubhouse and the massive grandstands and all the apartments and hotels there on the right hand side, just an unbelievable thing. And I, I just, it's something I thought, you know, I just, it's one thing I would aspire to feel that, um, and, and, you know, you, you don't even think you're going to do it. It's just sort of a dream, but um, to actually have that experience and to do it was, yeah, pretty pretty special. That, that's so cool. When you were standing there, if someone had told you that, hey, 10 years later, you're going to be cutting for arguably the greatest golfer of all time, and he's going to be striding up this 18th hole with a runaway victory, would you have believed him? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't have thought I'd be catting in that many years ahead, to be honest with you. So, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I, back like that was 1990. And, we, and you know, we, we'd lived pretty much week to week back then. So, it was, you know, like that wouldn't, you know, it was just an incredible moment to like to feel that adrenaline of something that you weren't even involved again. And, I, you know, you, and you can get a sense of where spectators have so much sense of the excitement. And, you, you know, being that was like being a spectator. And it was just, I'll, I'll never forget the moment I've, I've had the fortune to have many great moments but i'll never ever forget that moment because it lit a fire inside of me now we, we need to rewind for a, a quick second because the last episode that we did episode two that focused on tiger's 15 shot victory at the u.s open at pebble beach and that of course uh put him in position to win the his first british open and therefore capture the career grand slam 
and he was going to become, if he was successful, the fifth golfer in history to do so. So a very, very historic moment. And basically everyone in the sporting world just assumed that he was going to do it. And they turned out to be correct. But what was the hype like for you surrounding Tiger and capturing the career Grand Slam in those four weeks between the US Open and the British Open? Yeah, even look, it's hard to ignore that what was about to happen or what potentially could happen. And it was interesting to read so many columns and, and, and hear so many things. Was, yeah, a lot of journalists sort of, sort of thought it was a foregone conclusion. They pretty much sort of wrote <laughs> that as long as he made the flight and the flight didn't go down over the Atlantic, that he was going to win the, the championship. <laughs> but it, it's not as easy as that. But, you know, like it's, it was a short span of time between the Pebble Beach and St. Andrews. Obviously, the form was fantastic. And, it, you know, it would be surprising that the form would drop dramatically over a short space of time like that. So, um, but yeah, that you know, now that there was a chance not only to win the Open Championship, but to now be one of the to join that elite group of players to have the all the major titles, um, you know, that just put a bit more pressure on the week. Besides um, going back to New Zealand, which we which you did in between, if Tiger ever had more than a week off, you'd go home to New Zealand. Was there anything else you had to do to kind of escape? the bubble or escape the massive hype surrounding Tiger at times? Because I imagine every time you flew home from a tournament that Tiger just won or competed in, you would have seen magazines and newspapers in the airport with Tiger on the cover. Like, how almost suffocating was that? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a good point because, like, if you're in, if you're in the United States and, that, and, you know, you're a sports fan, you watch ESPN and there's not a night go by when Tiger was in his prime that he wasn't mentioned <laughs> somewhere along the white line on ESPN. They've got the golf channel that focuses solely on golf and, of course, Tiger's you know, the number one player, so he's going to get a lot of attention on every episode of of their news broadcast. So it's hard to escape it, but like going back to New Zealand is good because, you, you know, we don't have all those channels here readily, readily available unless you have sort of, you know, Sky TV, what it might be. But, um, you know, getting back to New Zealand was obviously a great way to recharge the batteries and think about what was coming up ahead of us. Chasing Majors is made possible by our friends over at Bluebet. Bluebet is the true blue Aussie betting company which offers plenty of markets in professional golf. Bet on your favourite golfers on various tours around the world, including every tournament on the US PGA Tour, both pre-tournament and in-play bets like first round leaders and three ball betting. There'll also be plenty of markets for the Majors starting with the upcoming Masters in April. One of my favourite bets on the Bluebet app is Tiger to win a major in 2022, and I think we'd all love to see him make another comeback. So head over to bluebet.com.au or download the Bluebet app from the iPhone or Android app stores and gamble responsibly. Yeah, Steve, that, that's all part of Tiger Mania, and, and specifically an, another part of Tiger Mania that seemed to draw in sports fans and even non-sports fans was money, and specifically all these crazy predictions about how rich Tiger Woods would actually become. Um, and so only a week or so before the British Open on the 10th of July, ESPN, the magazine featured Tiger on the cover with the headline $6 billion man. And obviously the article that, that it related to predicted that when Tiger was, was going to retire by that stage, he'd be worth $6 billion. Um, and it was a little overconfident, Steve, you, like you'd, you'd agree that to think that PGA Tour purses and TV rights deals would keep soaring at the rate that they were in those years leading up to 2000. But Everyone was pretty excited, you know, naturally. And um, Tiger would obviously fall short of the $6 billion mark, you know, as it stands today. He still did pretty well for himself. And I think only a few years ago, Forbes magazine estimated that he was worth $1.8 billion, which was the second richest athlete of all time. But what about you? When, when you were caddying for Tiger, 
What did you and Tiger think of the wild financial speculation that was sort of thrown around at the time? Yeah, look, I mean, Tiger didn't mention anything about it. And, and one of the things I admired most about Tiger, like I admired a lot of things, but one thing I absolutely admired about Tiger is that at the completion of a tournament, like you go into the scorer's hut, this is on Sunday, on the, you know, at the completion of the tournament, you go into the scorer's hut and you sign your scorecard and you hand your scorecard and, and they always have a sheet there with the prize money allocation for everybody. So you can look up on the screen, see where you finished and look down and see how much pro. Tiger never, ever took a look at that. He could never. never. And, and another thing that I admired him is that when he was get, getting an approach to go and play an event overseas, all the players, they always ask, what's the purse of that event? Tiger never asked what the purse was. You know, wow. so he, he played to win trophies and create records, not for prize money. I mean, I read that was a, a, he's the only player that I'd carry for, and only player that I've seen that never, ever looked at that sheet. Okay, he, you know, you, you could argue he didn't need to look at that sheet, but, you know, every player looks at that sheet, uh, and he never did. And like I said, whenever he got offers to go and play in yeah. overseas, the prize money had no, no, you know, no bearing on his decision to play or not play in, a, in a, an event that he was invited to overseas. Steve, I'm a big Tiger fan, <laughs> and what you've just said, there's two things there that are massive, and I, and I want to break them down if you don't mind. The first one, are you telling me that Tiger Woods never even looked at the prize money sheet when he had won a tournament? Like, yeah. like a, a lot of people out there would find that hard to believe, not because it's Tiger Woods, just because you know when you when you're when you're playing for that amount of money, you would naturally be curious about how much you just made. But so Tiger never checked it. No, never never looked at it. He never wow. ever once looked at that sheet. You know, like I said, he was playing for records and playing to win, and he certainly wasn't going to if he didn't finish first he certainly wasn't going to scroll down that sheet ever <laughs> he would <laughs> but no, he never looked at it like i said he plays to win and plays to create records and the second thing that you mentioned that i want to bring up was like he played overseas quite a fair bit he doesn't really get a rap tiger woods for for how much he actually took the game globally for a star in his position and that always came with a hefty price appearance fee we know that but that was the you know, like the, the management team around him that sort of negotiated that. He just sort of agreed to it. But he never once asked about the prize money for an overseas tournament. That is mind-boggling. Yeah, and another thing, Evan, that impressed me more than anything, he, he when he was going overseas to play in an event as an invited player, he did not ever, of course, he wants to win the tournament, but he never, he had a goal of never, ever finishing outside of the top 10. And, and, and man, he grounded out a lot of weeks when, you know, sometimes it's hard to go and play over and, you know, it might be the jet lag might get you, the course might not suit you, the different grasses and that are overseas. And all you know, there's lots of things that add up to make, being a globally good player. And one of them is, is being able to play competitively overseas and not just on your own tour. Um, but when he'd go overseas, and all the time that I gave him, he never finished outside of the top 10 in any event. You know, that's huge kudos to the man. That, that makes me a bigger Tiger Woods fan, Steve. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things like that that, a lot of people don't know about the guy and you know he's just a great competitor and like i said you know everybody is always concerned about the how much money they earn and so forth but he just was solely driven to win golf tournaments and he knew if he won golf tournaments and broke records the money would come yeah and hey that's not to diss anyone who does check prize money like there's, there's nothing wrong with you know checking how much you've just made because you're in this business to make money it's your profession you want to provide for your family there's nothing wrong with checking the prize money but it just what it's what one of those many things that make Tiger Woods so different to every other great athlete who's ever played sport. It's just it's just crazy. So all right, Steve, I want to move on to 
the sort of build-up to the British Open at St. Andrews in July 2000. Tiger finishes tied for 23rd He only at, at the Western Open. He only plays one tournament in between the US Open and the British Open. Um, but that what I want to focus on is what was the build-up like at Isleworth in Florida where Tiger lived and practiced? How would he get in shape for a British Open? Can you take us through that? Yeah, look, even, even though at the Western Open... This, his position, finishing position, would indicate that maybe you know his form had dropped off a little bit between the U.S. Open and then heading over to St Andrews for the Open Championship. But even when he was playing in a tournament between those two tournaments, and there was so much importance at St Andrews, his mind was although he was at the tournament, his mind was over the Atlantic, and <laughs> all the practice sessions, even at the Western Open, the practice sessions were more about focusing on what's going to be required for the Open Championship. Now, you know the ground's hard at the Open Championship and you've got to play a lot of lower shots, a lot of shots that, that run on the ground and you can't get steep on the ball and you've got to hit the ball cleanly. So at the Western Open and then in the week leading up to the British Open before he went over to Ireland to play, everything was honed in on hitting the ball cleanly, not taking okay. the divot and not getting steep on the ball. Tiger had a tendency sometimes to drop down and he could hit the ball quite steep and take quite big divots at times. Well, you can't hit consistently good shots off hard ground if you take a big divot. And also, you you, you take the risk of injuring your wrist at an open mm. championship when the ground's firm if you're beaten down on the ball because the ground's very, very firm. So you have to have a game plan in place for the Open Championship before you get there, when you get there, and obviously. So Tiger, like I said, even at the Western Open, there might have been a bit of a murmur, well, gee, he's fallen off here. But, I mean, like I said, he was competing in the tournament, but his mind was over the Atlantic, what was coming up. <laughs> uh, look, I think a lot of golfers would wish that they could have their mind elsewhere and still finish tied for 23rd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, so, okay, picking the ball clean off the turf, that's essential. Does that also allow Tiger to kind of flight the trajectory to the way that he would want it at the British Open? Yeah, like he, he in the lead up to the Open Championship, like I said, and even at practicing at um, at the Western Open, there he had hit a lot of those stinger shots that he hit off the tee. You know, two iron, three iron, four iron, five iron. Get used to hitting that shot off the tee, lower shot, hit cleanly, lower ball flight, and so forth. And, and he'd do a lot of practice getting the ball cleanly and getting that lower flight so that if it does get windy, you've got the ball under control. So a lot of practice went into that. And, and, and there's a bit of technique, like I said, he had a bit of a tendency on the way down to sort of drop his head a little bit. And when you drop your head a little bit, you have a tendency to maybe get a bit steeper than you'd want to. So staying tall on the ball was always a key element in the practice leading up to the Open Championship for Tiger. And what about you yourself? When Tiger, like, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to unpack there. If he's picking the ball clean and he's not taking as much of a divot, that's going to affect the spin rate, the trajectory. How much would you have to be dynamic and adjust to, the, to those different flights and whatnot in terms of what distances the club travel, what uh, shot selection you'd suggest, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, when you're obviously hitting at a lower trajectory like that and the ball's coming at low with less spin on it, it's not going to grab as quickly on the green. So you've got, you've got to know that, you know, instead of the ball sort of just landing and taking one hop and stopping like it can do, or even to the point in some courses the ball backs up, that you're always, the ball's going to take one decent bounce, check up a little bit, and then roll out. So where you land the ball on the green, you've got to think about that. Of course, where you land the ball, if you're the pins near the front, you've got to chase the ball up. You've really got to get adjusted, and particularly the iron shots, when he hits that stinger shot, you've got to work out what is the maximum distance that shot can go, even if it lands on a downslope on the field. What is the maximum distance? So in the mm -hmm. practice rounds, you record all that, 
every shot that he hits with each club off the tee, everyone, what is the, you know, everyone where it went. And, and at the end of the practice rounds, you'd say, okay, this, these three clubs, two, three, four, five on, this is the absolute maximum it went. So then when it comes to hitting those clubs and you're laying up from bunkers during the tournament, you know that you can take that club and it can't go any further than what, what it did in the practice round. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, the the playing of, a, of an open championship in preparation for windy conditions. Now, of course, sometimes like the open championship this year, when he went to St. Andrews, the winds weren't as gusty and as, you know, the prevailing wind wasn't as strong as it normally is. So it wasn't quite, it was a bit quite benign as to what it can be. Um, but still, when you play in the Open Championship or firm fairways and the ground is very, very hard, it's actually hard to hit the ball high. So you've got to adjust, you have to adjust. Now, now let's forget the Western Open and we go to the the range at Isleworth. How many days would you estimate from your memory it took Tiger to get in British Open shape, in Lynx condition shape? Yeah, well, look, look honestly, the, the, the moment that the, the last putt drops, at Pebble Beach, that's all that's on his mind. So as soon as he starts going back to Iworth, like I wasn't there straight away because I went back to New Zealand, but he's going to start practicing straight away for the Open hmm. Championship. That's just what, you know, yeah. so when it becomes natural, so every practice session he does, is he's working on flight, ball flight, uh, and consistently ball flight for the Open Championship. That's amazing. Would he, would he swing change a little bit because of the sh- the shape that he was trying to hit? Would you notice his swing might look a little different for those few weeks? Well, what you got to be careful is, is obviously you know you're going to hit a lot of stingers um, mm. and practice a lot of stingers, and you know that's a, a sawn off um, follow through for him and that. So that you know you've got to you got to be conscious that you, when you're practicing that you've got to go whilst you're trying to practice for the Open Championship. Still, you've got to go keep your normal swing going so that it becomes you don't get trapped and hitting. You know, if you play golf in the wind all week it's very difficult sometimes next week because you all you know you, you're basically mm. just sort of cutting every shot off and hitting a low shot so these are you know you've got to be very conscious of practicing your normal practice along with the practice you're preparing for the open championship as, as you lead up to it chasing majors is proud to partner with x blades who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world-class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union rugby league aussie rules and netball the team at X-Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport, and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors. Now, this is something not a whole lot of golf fans would know, but often Tiger liked to go to Ireland just before the British Open to kind of play Lynx golf, to get relaxed, to do a bit of fishing. I think Mark O'Meara came along for a few of those trips um, I know that you've told me you didn't always go on those island trips, but sometimes you did. What were they like? Like, like how, how fun were they? How much did it look like it relaxed targeted to, to build up to the Open that way? And just generally, like, how special was, was that to share that, that week leading up um, with the, you know, the greatest golfer of all time? Yeah, like a lot of the players, including Tiger, always felt it was beneficial to go over to the UK or Ireland the week before the Open Championship and get used to playing in the wind, for one, the cooler yep. conditions for two and three hitting off the hard turf. So um, Tiger thought Ireland was very good. They got great golf courses, excellent links courses in Ireland that are always windy. And you can play one or two of those golf courses and play them one day in one certain wind and play them another day in a different wind. And it's a completely different animal to play. And that's what you're looking for. So A, you go over to Ireland, it's generally cooler. B, you're hitting off some very, very hard turf. And you've got some great links courses. And, of course, Tiger loves his fishing. There's some great fly fishing there. 
and it's a great place to visit. You know, the, 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 you know, he loves the Irish people. It's a great place to visit. So it's a very relaxing way to lead yourself into the Open Championship whilst working on what you're trying to do to win the tournament. Yeah, it's one of my favourite countries in the world, Ireland. Obviously, as a golfer, it's incredible, but for so many reasons, it's just such an amazing country. Did you did you sort of play the classic links courses like Port Marnock and Port Stewart and all uh, you know all those sort of golf courses? Yeah, those yeah, links yeah, golf? yeah. Tiger played Bailey Bunyan, Old Head. You know, a lot of those great golf courses, great links courses. That would be good preparation, you know, for the Open Championship. And, you know, Ireland, like Scotland, uh, you know, you can do the same thing in Scotland, but he just had an affinity with Ireland and. Uh, they've got so many great golf courses there that could hold an Open Championship um, and, and prepare yourself just exactly how you'd want to prepare yourself for the Open. Imagine if you're sitting there at Port Minor Golf Club, which is one of the, my, probably my favourite course on the planet, and Steve Williams and Tiger Woods rock up for just a casual social game, obviously with the intention of working on his swing for the British Open and links conditions. But there's nobody around. But Steve Williams and Tiger Woods are there. Was that was that quite funny? Well, I mean, some of those rounds, <laughs> we, 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 you know, Tiger was no different when he went to the island. These rounds would be at dawn thirty. You know, <laughs> <So> <laughs> dawn thirty. That, that, that didn't change anything. And yep. um, you know, we'd play on some of those great golf courses, but but you know, and, and some of these great little towns. And by the time the word got round that Tiger Woods was out there playing on the golf course, <laughs> there was quite a number of spectators towards him. <laughs> but that, that, that was fun. You know, Tiger's yeah. in a fun mood, and he's out there having some fun. The Irish are great people, so they were great memories. And and like I said, that's an ideal preparation for what you're heading for the following week. That's awesome. So the word to get round, and maybe by the back nine, you've got a crowd of thirty or fifty people. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think one time, you know, the, I think it even was more. You know, so, you know, like one member rings another member. Hey, Tiger Woods, out here, you got to come and have a look, Joe. And you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> it just grew. But you know, it's great. I mean. Those people were truly respectful that Tiger was in town. They knew what he was going to do. There, no one would bother him. They just stood back and they watched mm. the guy play, you know, marvel at his golf game. That is awesome. And, and what about the fishing side of things? Did a did you did you fish with Tiger? And and b did you just have to pinch yourself that I'm fishing with Tiger Woods in Ireland and the British Open is next week? No, those guys are going fly fishing, and like they said to me, you you stick to can because you can't fish these. So, <laughs> <laughs> really, you're no good. Yeah, no good. <laughs> those guys. Those guys, Mark O'Meara and Tiger, very, very experienced fly fishermen, particularly Mark O'Meara, and I have no experience and I've no use to the trip for that. For that, so I would remain in the hotel until the golf. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, first of all, what was the flight like from Orlando to Ireland? In in this case, you know, like you've just put in all this work on the range, everything's ready to go. Tiger feels like he's probably going to win the British Open. Were those seven hours on that flight over the Atlantic, was that just a nice time to sit down and relax and just kind of, you know, just switch off for a bit, almost like sitting backstage with a rock star? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I always felt that, you know, those times on an aircraft, wherever you're going, are actually a great time to reflect and, and think about what's coming up. You know, this flying is not viewed as something enjoyable to most people, but when you do it so frequently... It's actually a great place because, you know, Tiger used to always say, you know, look, you know, there's no one bothering you. You're doing what you yeah. want to do. You can watch the movie you want to watch. And it's actually a nice, it's a, it's a, it's a nice lead up because, you know, the minute you get off the plane, there's going to be demands on your time. There's going to be people watching what you're doing. There's going to be people following you. So it's actually a nice, you know, it's a nice few hours to just sort of lead into the tournament. We, we'd have some pretty in-depth discussions um about the course uh, on the okay. yeah like some uh, yeah like like out of the seven hours how much would be dedicated just 
having a drink and, and having a chat and chin wag and relaxing and how much would be sort of planning the British Open assault and all that. G- give us a bit of a breakdown. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously the flight from Orlando and that, with the time time frame, you take off there, so you get you know you, you're going to land early in the morning in the UK and that, so you you want to get some sleep. So we we, we you know we generally just as soon as we got going, we'd have a bit of a chat about the course and, and and so forth, what the weather forecast was predicting for the week and so forth, and yeah, just little things like that, and then you know just tune off and get ready for it. That's awesome. You, you must have felt quite fortunate, you know, to be able to travel on on Tiger's private jet, not. Not everyone in the in in the golf world is so lucky, and I imagine that would have been a really special moment for yourself. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, like I always like you say, you just sort of pinch yourself as life went on, as the years carried on with Tiger Woods, and that you know, it was you know, I'm just a kid from New Zealand basically, and yeah, <laughs> pretty amazing. But you know, I enjoyed trying to be part of what he was trying to achieve, and it was awesome. Now, I, I believe you actually stop over, like, so you go to Ireland, and I believe that Tiger that year, he didn't he didn't do this almost ever. He played a celebrity tournament just before the British Open, the JP McManus Celebrity Pro-Am. It's a very well-known Pro-Am in the world of golf because, from all reports, JP McManus is a great guy, and it's a great event with a lot of money raised for charity. And this one was played at Limerick Golf Club, and Tiger actually won it. And I was reading in my research that, you know, some of the celebrities that were there were like, Manchester United's coach at the time, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the, arguably the greatest football manager of all time, bunch of other celebrities, 15,000 people came out to watch. It must have just been chaos, but in, in a really fun way. Yeah, I mean, that Tiger, that, those guys have a, you know, an association with Isleworth and the place in Bahamas where Tiger is. So he's good. J, JP does, do you mean? He has an association with Isleworth? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And that they just it's a great pro-am. Raises great money, and, 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 and you know a lot of the guys go and play with them. They're two great characters, JP McManus and, and his mate Desmond McDermott. They list, they love golf, and it's a great event. So you know a few days of playing a bit of links golf, and then you play in the pro am, and then you head over to St Andrews from there. Chasing Majors is proud to partner with X Blades, who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules and netball. The team at X-Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors. Alright Steve, we move on to the Open Championship and I want to get a sense of how difficult is it to caddy at the British Open because... You know, there's so much going on. There are so many elements, and you're caddying for Tiger Woods, so the standard is really high. How difficult is caddying at the Open? Well, St Andrews is like no other course in the world as you Mm. can play down different fairways. Obviously, there's no rough as to speak at St Andrews. Well, there is, but, you know, there's no rough that divides the fairways. So depending Mm. on where the flag is or which way the wind's blowing, you can play down opposite fairways, or not opposite fairways, but the fairway on the other side, and... Mm. A lot of these are blind shots, and you've there's so many bunkers. So you've got to be able to tell Tiger or the player that you're caring for, like here's the line, and so forth. And you've got to know either side of that line where the bunkers are. So you have to be able to tell them that's <laughs> the line, but there's a you know there's a bunker here or whatever it might be. St Andrews is probably one of the best tests of a caddy in my eyes because there's different ways to play the golf course based on where the hole location is and where the wind's blowing. So you know you've got the double greens. And you've got these massive fairways where you can play down the right side or down the left side. So 
you've got to have a really good understanding because you can't see a lot of these bunkers because um, of all the mounding. So it, 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 it you know, requires a lot of skill. And when you're at the Open Championship, I mean, I, don't, I, I would walk that golf course so many times just so, you know, every, every morning before you play the round in the tournament rounds and then in, in the practice rounds, even every night after the practice rounds, I'd go and walk the course just so I knew, okay, where is that bunker? What is the line? Just so because there's so many hidden things there. So you've got, a, you've just, there's so many bunkers there and there's so many hidden things and everything. You've just got, you know, you've got to know the course the best you can. And it's, I always felt it was better to be out there when no one else is out there, i.e. first thing in the morning or late at night. And, and so you can take it all in without any distractions, but it's, you know, you won't find any player that wins at St. Andrews that's got a caddy on the bag that, that doesn't know what he's doing sort of thing. He's just a friend or, or or just a you know a mate yeah. for the week. You've got to be a, an excellent caddy to get your play around that course. Is that the most difficult thing? Not only about St Andrews, but most of the um, courses on the open rotor, uh, but, but particularly St Andrews, is knowing where not only where the bunkers are on a particular hole, but the other holes in case you were going to play down that fairway. So you kind of had to have this knowledge of three different golf holes at once and where the bunkers are. Yeah, not only that, you've got to have yardages from all these other different places. And I mean, there's so <laughs> many ways to play so many different, there's so many different ways to play. I mean, if you go and play some of the normal, let's just say, for instance, you go and play in Birkdale, well, you're just going to play the fairways that, that's in front of you and go down that you know like a everyone's going to play the golf course in the same manner they're going to hit different clubs off the tees but at St Andrews there's so many different options as to how you're going to play a hole depending like I said on the wind direction and where the hole's located so you've got to, you've got to have a great great understanding of that course and it's that's what makes it such a great golf course i mean of course it ne- with the modern technology and everything, it needs the wind to blow a little bit to make it a better test of golf. And you see now, typically when the guys play there in that Dunhill Lynx tournament, when there's little wind, I mean, these guys shoot 62 and 63 every day because there's no wind. And when there's no wind, the course is kind of defenseless. But, um, you know, typically when the Open Championship's there in July, it's unusual if there's not wind. Now, forgive me here, but can you rank the difficulty of caddying at the four majors? Rank them from one to four and why? <laughs> okay, absolutely. Well, I, I would rank Augusta at number one. Um, okay. Because the, why is that? Because the the penalty for a misjudgment, misclub selection is greater there than any other place. Uh, two, I would rate the Open Championship. The weather comes in as a factor. The different... The, um, style you've got to play golf and, and then the understanding you've got to have of the golf course. Three would be the US Open. Um, that's that's the toughest challenge you'll face as far as the course with the rough and so forth. And then, you know, the PGA Championship, I'd rate fourth. That would be, I, 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 and I would be understanding that most people would rate, most caddies would rate them in that, in that way. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, when you were caddying in practice rounds at the Open, particularly at St. Andrews for Tiger, what did you notice that separated him from the other 
people that he'd play with in those practice rounds. Was there anything that he did differently that was just extra special? Well, you know, like he was obviously in good form again, um, heading and and I could tell by the ball flight that that you know after going to Ireland practicing at Isleworth that the ball flight was really really good. So once again, before the tournament started, you know, I knew it was going to be a very good week, and and then you just like I said, you want it, you this is where it's crucial that you you know you don't feel like you want to be the one that mucks up sort of thing. So it, 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 it creates a lot of pressure. Hmm. And and. Um, you just mentioned before that you, like you love to walk the course early and late at night and especially doing that at St. Andrews. Was that almost like yoga? That must have been spiritual. Oh, I, look, I mean, you, the RNA was very, very accommodating in the way they let caddies. They had a rule. Uh, it only changed a few years ago, but at, the, at that particular time in time, you were actually allowed to walk on the greens as long as you're off the golf course before the group first group teed off and, Usually the first group group in the Open Championship tees off at 6.30. So you'd be out at the golf course at half past four or five in the morning, you know, because it's light as there, and you could walk on the greens. And so you can really get a good understanding. You, you, you Before you head out to the golf course, you get a feel, or not a feel, but you look up where the wind's going to be. So you know when you're walking the golf course what way the wind's going to be blowing, and then you can see which way is going to be best to come into this flag and where you don't want to be. So... Um, I was always surprised you'd go out there in the morning time. There might be 30 or 40 caddies out there. And there's 156 players in the field. Like, where is everybody else? So, I mean, you know, and it's always <laughs> the guys that were doing well was the guys that their caddies were out there in the morning. So, you know, it's, really? yeah, absolutely. Because they, they're getting a great feel. They, they're knowing where to tell their players where to hit the ball, what side of the field they need to be. They know where the wind's going to be because they've done the same thing. So it's a huge advantage. And it's, you know, like at Augusta, you can't even walk on, you know, you can, they don't even let you inside the ropes unless you've got that uniform on and you're with your player. So there's two contrasting events that have got different rules. So are you telling me that as a betting man, all I need to do is go to the British Open during the practice rounds and whatever caddies are out there first light and, and last light at the end of the day, that's who I should bet on? Well, <laughs> there'll be a number of them, but one, one of those guys that's out there, I'll be 90% confident they'll be on one of the, on the player, they'll be looping for the player that's going to take the claret joke. It, it's coming from that pool of caddies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, Steve, let, let's kick off. And round one, Tiger shoots a 67 just to sit at five under par. And he's only one shot behind Ernie Els, one of his great rivals. And on day two, he gets really hot. He shoots a 66 and he climbs to 11 under par. And now he's three shots clear in the lead of David Toms. What are your memories of those first two rounds at St. Andrews in 2000? Yeah, look, I mean, once again, he got off to a good start. He was playing fantastic minimal mistakes ball flight was good and he was in that you know that trance like mood again he was you know how he said that and say at, at the open us open at pebble beach he felt calm i could see he felt calm here so well, you know it was it was a great exhibition of golf uh and, and you know with 36 holes to go you knew it was going to be an exciting event and i knew that someone was going to have to really step up and play well to challenge tiger because he was in the zone he was just swinging the club he hadn't lost that swing from you know a few weeks before he was really swinging it great his practice sessions on the range were flawless and when he's when he's got a practice session on the range and it's flawless and he's putting on, you know, used to, like a clinic and, you know, you always can sense that it's good because you can see a lot of other players standing around behind him watching. <laughs> the guys have finished their rounds or they haven't started their rounds. They've got some spare time or there's just some guys. When you see a lot of guys standing around, you know, it's pretty good. For the person at home who's never had the joy of watching Tiger Woods in person, 
what what is it what does a clinic look like on the range when tiger's in his prime like like describe how good he's swinging it and the shots he's hitting and are, are you asking him to hit certain shots you know like how, how does it look yeah i mean he you know he starts off he always hits about four shots to start off with with no he just puts a club in his hand he has no target in mind he just swings a golf club and just it doesn't matter where the ball goes just to get a feel to start the day and then he gets target orientated in the next few shots and then he starts hitting shots left to right right to left high low and put you know and goes through the club he, every practice session uh, he did the same as what jack nicholas did so he would go sand iron uh eight iron four iron three wood driver and then his last shot before he'd leave the range would be the club that he's going to hit off the first tee so mm. obviously at st andrews is always an iron of some description so yeah so every practice session would be the same as far as the clubs that he'd hit and he'd just go through, you know, hitting all these shots and that. So when he's on form and he's swinging good, it's, it's great to watch, you know, the right, the left, left, the right, the high and the low. Um, very impressive to watch. And, and when you're, when that's happening, are, are you calling out shots like, Hey tiger, I want to see the tee shot on 13 or the tee shot on 14, that sort of stuff. And, Hey, t- hey, Tiger, hit it left to right or hit it low with a draw. Yeah, absolutely. There's certain shots on a golf course, you you know, like let's just say you're standing on the range at, at Augusta and I'd say to Tiger, let's see the shot for the 10th hole, you know, three wood right to left. And then, and then you know, okay, where's the hole located on the on the fourth hole, the par three? The pin Tiger's here, the tee's here today. This hole's playing 210 yards a little bit into it. You've got to hit a high shot. you know. So you, absolutely, there's certain shots you've got to call for so that you know when you come to that shot, you've uh, like at Augusta when you walk around the course in the morning, you go and, you know, you can go and see where the tee's located, where the hole is, and play those shots on the practice range before before you get to the hole so that you've actually got a sense that you've made that swing and, and hit the shot that's required at the time when you get there. So that's a great confident booster. Well, that, that must have been so special to watch and, and just to, to be able to, to get him to to call out shots to get him to hear that. That's incredible. I'm very jealous, Steve. <laughs> um, okay, so just, just to bring it back and re- refresh the listeners, uh, two rounds are being played at the Open at St. Andrews. Tiger's in the lead at 11 under par and David Toms is three shots back. And we move on to the third round and Tiger continues just being red hot. He shoots a 67 to get to 16 under par. But there, there's one shot I want to ask you about, Steve, and I think you know what I'm going to ask about. It's the second shot into the par 5 14th hole. I believe it's a fairway wood of some description. Tiger flushes it, and he says to you, Steve, is that the one you're talking about? Is that the one you're talking about? <laughs> Can you remember that? Yeah, so that's a classic thing that, you know, it's he's hit a great tee shot. there. That's probably one of the hardest tee shots in golf, to be honest, I believe. Um, the, the, the 14th at St. Andrews. Yeah, typically the wind's coming left to right there. You've got the, all those bunkers on the left there. You've got the wall there. It's out of bounds on the right. That is, I would say when the wind's coming off the left, I, I would think that's probably the hardest tee shot in golf. Uh, or certainly one of them. But anyway, on that particular day, it's a great tee shot. Of course, when you're in the middle of the fairway, you, you can't see the green because of the massive, there's that huge bunker there known as Hell's Bunker for a reason. That's one you just can't go in. So you can't see the green. And the whole location that day was over, there's a pot bunker in front of the green and the whole location is a back hole location, but it's over that bunker. So you don't want to be in that bunker either because that's a steep bunker. So I told him, you know, having been out there in the morning, I know exactly if you're standing on the fairway, there's a church steeple in the distance. I said to him, you know, I can't remember which steeple it was, but whatever one it is, I said, that's the church. Okay, Tiger, that's the third church steeple up there. That's where you've got to hit this. 
and he hit it and he hit the shot. It never deviated. It was absolutely like a rocket. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and he says, that one? I said, yeah, that one. He said, you better be right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, were, you, were you absolutely nervous? Oh, no, no, no. I, I'd been out there, you know, and I stood on the left side of the fairway, the middle of the fairway, the right side of the fairway. Like when you go out there in the morning and knowing that if he does hit the ball in the fairway, and you, so you go and position yourself on the left side of the fairway, right side of the fairway, and center of the fairway, and know where he's got to hit it to get it on the right-hand side of the green because it's going to be into the wind on that particular day. So it's not like he's going to be flying it onto the green. From memory, he was you know, out in, in the 270, 280 front range, so it's a, into a breeze. So yeah. um, it's going to be a shot that's going to land short and run up onto the green. So you've got to know exactly you know, where you've got to land it between those bunkers on the right and that one on the left. I know it was 22 years ago, but can you remember what wood it was? Was it a three wood or a yeah. five? Yeah, I, I, I actually <laughs> remember that shot vividly, actually, because it, I mean, it just, you stand there and it never left that steeple in the distance. It was just amazing. And, and like you said, you better yeah. be right. You better be right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you ever get a chance, watch the, the 2000 British Open official film on, on YouTube. You can watch it at St. Andrews. And when when it when it gets to the third round, Tiger hits this three wood off the deck, and it's just transcendent. It's amazing. What a what a shot! All right, Steve. Tiger cruises to a sixty seven, and and now he's firmly in the lead at sixteen under par. He's six shots ahead of Thomas Bjorn and David Duval. Um, and we move on to the final round, and Tiger grabs four birdies in his first fourteen holes. And people actually forget he got to twenty under par at, at one stage, but he ends up bogeying seventeen. Can can you take us through sort of what that bogey meant on seventeen at the time? Yeah, I mean, of course, he doesn't want to make a bogey. Um, and, and it was, <laughs> you know, he just hates making a bogey. But, um, you know, obviously, he was very, real keen to get to 20 under and he got to 20 under uh, and he was disappointed with that. But um, it was, a, it was a, even though at the end of the tournament, you know, the margin of victory was eight, but at one point there, the lead was cut to three. Now, you know, David Duval at that point. Yeah, I believe that was after nine holes. I think Duval was within three shots after nine yeah. holes. And, and and sorry to, to bring it back for the, for the listeners, he was paired with David that day, wasn't he? So great friend, David Duval. They're both going for the British Open and Tiger's clearly, you know, the, the favourite. Um, and, and he gets to within three shots after nine holes, Duval. Yeah, and, and Tiger, he had great respect for David. I think he went... To be honest with you, I think Tiger had more respect for David Duval than any other player that was in their prime when they were competing at wow. Tiger. And he took what was that, that? He just he, he thought his demeanor, his ability, and the way he went out about things was somewhat similar to himself. And he saw him as an absolute threat. So that was a big round because he wanted to stamp some domination. It's the first time they're playing in a major championship, both in contention. And despite having a sizable lead, he saw him as a threat. And David started off playing exceptionally well. And, and Tiger was, I mean, he, he wasn't looking at anybody. He wasn't smiling. He was, you know, until he, because you know, Dave was playing fantastic. I, I think Tiger didn't make his birdie to about the fifth hole. And David, oh, the fourth hole, yeah. And David already made a couple. So that, you know, Unfortunately, David fell apart on the back nine, but that was a great battle. I think the 10th hole was the telling story there. Um, they both hit tee shots. I think Tiger knocked it on the green. Duval was just off the side of the green there. Um, Tiger didn't hit a good first putt. David chipped up. They had both had putts of about the same distance. Now, Duval was putting first. If he had made that putt, he could possibly have cut the lead to two if Tiger had a miss, or Duval misses Tiger's hold, so now he's four ahead. Uh, and I think that was the turning point there. But it, it could have gone the other way. But 
Tigers saw him as a serious threat, uh, and for, for the time you know, down the road when David did get to number one in the world, um, Tiger, Tiger believed he was you know as good a player as himself. Wow, that, that, that's such a massive compliment. And I will point out, it's only a year later that he wins the 2001 British Open, Duval. So he's right then and there. But um, it wasn't often that Tiger was friends with someone who he saw as a threat. He, he tended to be a bit of a lone wolf. And a lot of the great players in that era were lone wolves. What was it about Duval that Tiger was able to maybe let his guard down a little bit and, 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 and befriend Duval, even though, he, as you said, he saw him as a real threat? Yeah, he saw him as a real threat, but this is a, you know, but but he saw him that he was somewhat like himself. David was a bit of a lone wolf himself. He was another Nike player to some at some some point, not not then at the Open Championship. But I, I just saw he saw a lot of him in himself, and you know he was great mates with him. But it was you know he he was a serious threat. And Tiger admired. I think in all the years that Tiger played when I was getting him, I think the guy that he admired the most was David Devell for that period of time. When he was on top of his game, he was a he was a great player. That's awesome. I, I never really knew that. I knew that he was friends with him and admired him, but I didn't sort of realize it was probably the guy that he admired most of, among his peers. That's- yeah, oh, he, 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 when he was paired with him or he was battling against him, he, he there was an extra sense of urgency because he, he knew that this is one guy that absolutely could beat him. Yeah, so so he stepped up his his energy on performance. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so like we mentioned, Tiger's birdied the fourth hole and, and, and hasn't had a bogey yet. Birdies 10, 12, and 14 to get to 20 under par. And like we just mentioned before, he bogeyed 17. And that puts him in a weird position because Nick Faldo had the Open Championship all-time scoring record of 18 under par and Tiger now needs a par on 18 to get to 19 under par and beat that record. And I believe he smashes the drive right down the middle of the fairway. And then he's got a wedge shot over the Valley of Sin. Um, and, and he shows kind of this just incredible discipline in that moment. With, with, a, with a massive lead like he had at the time, he could have gone at that flag and, and, and copped a bogey on the chin. But he really wanted that record. So he hits it something like 40 feet beyond the flag. Can you talk to how Tiger showed discipline in those moments? Yeah, like I mean, so the, the you know the, the, the tee shot probably wasn't the ideal angle, but to take any chance of anything going wrong, I said just hit it down to the first tee, go down the left side, just hammer it down to the left <laughs> side, and then of course you know you're coming across the valley of sin there. The one thing you don't want to do is leave it short and put yourself in position to be putting up the valley of sin there. So you know he was clinical in the way he okay. I, I know I just need to make four here and I've got the record, so I just hit it a little bit past the flag. And of course, there's a lot of adrenaline going. It went a bit, you know, he was trying to hit it past the flag, but obviously wasn't pleased at hitting it like 40 feet past the flag. And and then you know the the second putt there, trying to hold that to finish 19 under. If you watched him, you think that was the putt to win the tournament. You know, a lot of guys when they got a, a big lead. You know, they wouldn't take as much time, but that was like Tiger. He wants to win the tournament. He's all about breaking records. And, and that part there was, you know, that was huge. He wasn't thinking about winning the tournament right there. It was about breaking the record. I mean, that's just, <laughs> but, you know, obviously he hates making bogeys. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know the stretch of holes, but between the Open Championship and his, and, and his first bogey at St. Andrews, it was something like, I think off the top. I think it was 60, 63. I believe it was. I was going to say it was 60 yeah. something holes of major championship golf without a bogey. I mean, here's a man that just, I mean, that is insane. Some guys probably have never played nine holes without a bogey in a major. <laughs> you know, that's that's an incredible statistic. All right, absolutely. Um, th- th- there's a few things I want to ask you. 
Uh, the Valley of Sin is a very famous depression or a hollow right in front of the green uh, at St. Andrews, at the, at the 18th green at St. Andrews. A lot of iconic moments have happened there, both wins and losses. What makes that shot so intimidating? Well, I mean, it's, it's just such a steep bank to put up. And you know you've got to hit it so hard to get it up there. And and typically, you know, the all the drama happens on Sunday there and the pin's just over it. And, and you've got to belt it to get up in the hill. But it's, you know, inevitably, there's two things that happen. You don't hit it hard enough, it comes back to you, or you hit it so hard and you can't get the speed. You can stand there all day and practice that shot, but when actually the heat comes on, like in practice rounds, the guys hit that putt. You know where the pins are going to be. You put a tee there, they putt to it and practice like it's nothing. When it actually counts, it's a very difficult putt. Hence, there's been a lot of drama from the Valley of Sin at 18 at St. Andrews. So he hits his wedge, like, he, like we mentioned before, about 40, uh, 40 feet beyond the flag. And basically, like we already know, the Open Championship's wrapped up at this stage. So take us through, what is that walk like for a caddy up the 18th hole at St. Andrews to win the Open at the home of golf? What was that like for you? Well, we'd mentioned to you 10, you know, 10 years ago, I'd, I'd had that um, yeah. moment with Fanny. And of course, Fanny was doing the same thing. I felt pretty special that I'd watched her. And I'd... Oh, so Fanny was there to watch you? Yeah, I was pretty chuffed with that. And... and... It was pretty amazing because, you know, Tiger has a lot of security around him. And when they play that 18th hole, they, they let the gallery come up behind the players, but they just broke loose. It was just mayhem, <laughs> absolute mayhem. So, um, but it, it, when you walk up there and you see that yellow scoreboard, and you see Tiger's name up there and you know it's going to go on the claret jug and you know it's, you know, he's now going to be the fifth player to, to hold the Grand Slam. It, it was um you know, it, it's just, it's, you get chills, actually. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and you try and, you, you know, it's something that's not going to last, for, you know, two, three, four-minute walk up there. But you're trying to just take it all in. Um, it's pretty amazing just, you know, like to look around and see everybody and then what's going on. It's pretty pretty special. And, like, you don't know if you're ever going to get that moment again. And it's just when you get that moment, it's it's incredibly special. And, like, I don't think there's any better walk in golf than coming up the 18th hole at the Open Championship in particular, at St. Andrews. Can you remember it as clear, like, right now as it was back then? Is the memory vivid? Oh, yeah. I could, it, it, Look, it, one thing that, that, that I just, I always admired about the Open, well, not admired about the Open, but one of my favourite things, and it has nothing to do with Tiger Woods, is that every year at the Open Championship, on the 18th hole, Peter Thompson would greet me afterwards. and Really? <laughs> always had some words to wisdom. And he, uh, Peter Thompson, very famous Australian professional golfer. He, he sadly passed away a few years ago, but he won the British Open five times, so they gave him the nickname five times. One of those Open victories was at St Andrews. So you got you got a special word from the from the late uh, from the, from Peter Thompson when that happened. Yeah, and I knew that Peter because Peter was a member of the RNA, and I knew yep. that he would be standing up there outside the clubhouse, just to the left of the 18th green. And when we came off there, Tiger done the scorecards and that. I went over and he was there, and his words all the time just inspired me. You know, it was the first guy mm. I ever caddied for, and every year we had that tradition at the Open Championship. So that was, yeah, that's that, really cool. Yeah, like he he was an inspirational guy to me, Peter Thompson. Sorry to put you on the spot. Can you remember what he said in that moment in the 2000 Open? <laughs> You wouldn't believe what he said, Evan. He, he said, Steve, you're going to have to tell the guy that he's just hitting it too hard because that action's not going to last. <laughs> really? He's, he's hitting, it, hitting it too hard. 
So Tiger Tiger Woods is about to capture the career Grand Slam, and Peter Thompson says his swing's too violent. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. He said it's not going to last, Steve. You're going to have to tell him to slow it down. <laughs> He always had some great wisdom. I mean, you know, he was yep. just a fantastic character. And like I said, he's the first guy I came for in 1976. And we, we had that tradition every year of meeting on the 18th green. Because like I said, Peter's a member of the RNA. And he would go every year to the Open Championship until, until he wasn't well enough to go. Him and his wife, Mary, would go to the Open Championship. And I had great delight in talking to them every year. There was, it was a highlight of the year. And for the listeners who might not know, uh, like you just mentioned, he gave you your start as a caddy in in terms of professional golfers. So it's it's full circle moment for you, isn't it? Back in the early in the mid seventies, the first pro golfer you ever caddy for was Peter Thompson, I believe, at the nineteen seventy six New Zealand Open. So twenty four years later, you're winning the Open with Tiger Woods, and yeah, he's there to and, greet you. And, and not only that, having caddy for Peter and watching the way Peter played golf. It was absolutely understandable. You could see how he was a five-time Open champion. His game was just perfect. And the way he played and the little things. I mean, I, I always said to him, Peter, how do you hit it so low? How do you hit it that So He said, you just hit it one groove up. That's all you do. All the whole, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> One groove up. Yeah, that's what he said to me. He just hit it one groove up. You know, he, he, he was an absolute delight to caddy for and someone I learned so much off. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the Digital Pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Fanny Sunison, obviously, very, very famous caddy. Caddy for Nick Faldo. Uh, what does she sort of say to you in those moments and, and describe you greeting Fanny after you just won the Open with Tiger? Well, like it was just a full turnaround. I was just so wrapped when she won it with Nick. You know, Fanny won four major championships with Nick out of his six major championships. And, you know, one of the greatest caddies ever, probably the hardest working caddy ever. And it was just full circle. She was just so excited for me to experience that walk up St. Andrews. Because we both talked about it. When I walked up there with her, she won it. And we talked about that later that night. And then the same thing, you know, how how was it different with Nick? Because how was it with Tiger? And, you know, things have changed since 1990 to 2000. So, you know, like... She, she, she to me was a, a, a close friend and someone I admired her work ethic. You know, it's a, a field dominated by men caddy, and she was one of the best caddies out there. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, now, before we get into the records that Tiger either set or broke um, with with his victory at the Open, I want to ask you about the streakers that day because in my research, I found out that five people were fined by police that day for streaking, and there's a really iconic sort of for the wrong reasons photo of. You, Tiger, sort of walking up towards the Valley of Sin at the 18th green at St. Andrews, and this woman runs onto the green butt naked and, and poses for a photo with the flag. I mean, how, how chaotic was that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, you just, you, you, it's something you're just not even thinking about. You know, it doesn't even come into your mind. All someone's happened, it's like it's not real. And, and, mm. and of course, it, I think it just stuns everybody, even the police. And everybody, you know, she gets to do what she wants to do before anybody pounces on her. So, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just adds, I mean, it doesn't add to the moment, but I mean, it's just, 
you know, like the the crowd is just going berserk and everything. <laughs> All right, Steve. Tiger shoots a 69 to finish at 19 under par, so he does get that record, that scoring record for the Open off Nick Valdo. And he, in doing so, he wins by eight shots against Thomas Bjorn and Ernie Els, who are both tied for second. Can, can you believe the performance that Tiger put on that week? Yeah, look, once again, I mean, you know, there's always pressure. He's Tiger Woods. He's the number one player in the world, and there's a lot of pressure on him to perform. But heading into this championship, he's trying to win the Open Championship and then become the fifth player to be join that elite group of Grand Slam winners. So, you know, to play like he did and take that from the US Open and come over there, he wins the US Open by 15 shots and then backs it up with an eight-shot win here. I think at that particular point in time, there's, it's just undisputable. He's playing golf at a different level than anyone's ever played. And in the entire time that I cared for Tiger, you know, those two performances at the US Open and at the Open Championship in 2000, they just stand out as, as absolute incredible 72-hole performances. He played a lot of tournaments, won a lot of tournaments. Some of them might have been you know, great for 18, 36, 54, but these were two 72-hole complete extraction of the best golf that Tiger's got. It was amazing to watch and, and, and a, you know, a fitting in to capturing that Grand Slam. Are they so the 2000 US Open at Pebble Beach, which he wins by 15 shots, and now the Open at St Andrews, which he wins by eight shots? Are they the two greatest performances that you caddied for Tiger while you're with him? Um, undoubtedly, they would, they would rank number one and two, absolutely. So Tiger wins his first Open Championship, and in doing so, uh, he becomes the fifth career Grand Slam winner, which which of course means that you won all four different majors in your career. So he joins in a very illustrious club that, that features Gene Saracen, Ben Hogan, Gary Player, and Jack Nicholas. But the thing is, not only did Tiger secure the career Grand Slam, he becomes the youngest. So Jack Nicholas pulled it off at the age of 26, but Tiger now does it at the age of 24. So what did that mean to Tiger, and what did it mean to you to become the youngest ever career Grand Slam winner? Yeah, I, I think what that just tells you is that the opportunity to win or surpass Jack's record of 18 major championships is, is, is once again, it's just something that's absolutely possible. He's 24 years old. He's captured, you know, the Grand Slam ahead of what Jack did. He's playing unbelievable golf. The future is just, you know, as bright as could be. And, you know, look, it was a proud moment to be part of that. To You know, he's only four ever players have done it before Tiger. So to be on, and, you know, to be on the bag for Tiger when he completed that, it's, it's an amazing feeling. How much did that ramp up the, the talk uh, internally among Team Tiger about how possible it would it would be to surpass Jack Nicklaus's record 18 majors? And, and the follow-up to that is, uh, did Tiger have a number in mind in terms of the amount of majors he wanted to win in his career? Because I imagine he wanted, obviously wanted more than 18. Yeah, look, we, we, we often joked about that a little bit. And, you know, obviously Tiger wanted to beat Jack's record. Um, he wanted, he, 20 was his number. And I said, well, mm. 21's my favourite number. We might as well make it 21. And, and we sort of, <laughs> we had a bit of a, you know, discussion that, okay, well, when he gets to 21, he was just going to retire. So I, we didn't get there. I don't know if that was going to happen, but if that, we certainly, we had a bit of a <laughs> bit of an agreement that once he got to 21, um, and, and, and ironically, um, the talk, it's, it's, this has just come into my head, but it's completely irrelevant. Mm. But when he won the, World Series of Golf in the dark is the moment that we decided that it was 21. We were walking down the 72nd hole to that group. Oh, really? That was when the moment, I, I distinctly remember the conversation after the second shot when everyone had the lights around the green, 
that is when the moment that we decided that when we get to 21, it's all over Rover. (laughs) (laughs) Like walking down the fairway? Yep. Yep. That was the moment. So it was in the, so it was in the heat of the battle of a tournament, trying to win a tournament, that we decided that twenty one majors would be the number that he'd want to get to. So, yeah, I, I think the the tournament that you're referring to it happened only a month later, right at the uh, at famous Firestone Country Club in Ohio, the WGC NEC Invitational, and Tiger Woods hits a shot in in pitch black scenes, and he hits a sandwich to like a foot to tap in for birdie to win. So that, that's when you decided it was officially going to be 21 majors? Yeah, we, we walked down that fairway there, and I don't know how the discussion came up. I don't recall, but I do recall after hitting a second shot and walking up there in the dark, when everybody's got their lights and torches flashing just so we can see what we're turning on the last hole, that <laughs> is when we said, okay, 21 majors, and then we're going to call it quits. So how it came to be on that particular point in time that we decided, that, I don't know, but I do recall the time and the place. <laughs> that that's awesome that almost gives me chills down my spine you know like that's the moment you decided it wasn't just going to be 18 majors jack's 18 it was going to be 21 yeah and tiger gave me his after he hit his second shot he gave me his glove and i wrote 21 on it and gave it back to him just to confirm that that's what we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> so it's in writing yeah exactly <laughs> that's exactly what i did God, I, I wonder what he's done with that that glove. I wonder where that is. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a that's a it's a memento. It's a it's a piece of history, golfing history. Well, just one one other bit of golfing history from that is Tiger. He used one tee for the whole tournament at St Andrews, right? And he kept that tee in his golf bag as a good luck charm. And that from not from 2000 for the remainder of time that I cared for Tiger, that tee, Tiger had a pouch where he put his watch, his wallet, and any personal stuff in. And that tee remained in that pouch from St. Andrews from 2000 for the, for the, entire, for the rest of his career. Yeah, that was his lucky charm. And, and, wow. And sometimes oh. I'd say to him when things weren't going right or something, just touch that lucky charm, Tiger. He knew exactly what I was talking about. All right, there's there's heaps to unpack here. <laughs> okay, hold on. Sorry. First of all, are you telling me that Tiger Woods didn't break a tee during the Open Championship? No, he had this one tee. I mean, and it got to the point Tiger used to love, even when a tee would get chipped at the top and he'd keep you, like sometimes you'll see in a tournament and you think, well, how can he not be getting the ball on? Because he'll use a tee to absolutely can't hit another shot off it. But he kept this tee, he used the whole tee there, and then he kept that tee as a good luck charm. So Tiger Woods would keep tees if he felt some good juju or something like that, even if he's chipping the, the sides of it off as he's hitting it. With... Absolutely. Yeah, if, he, if it's a tee, if, it, if he hits off the first tee with a tee and it's a very good shot, he's using that off the next tee. And if it's not a good shot, then that tee's chucked away. <laughs> so he didn't break a tee, not once, you know, 72 tee shots during the 2000 Open at St. Andrews. He doesn't break the tee and then he keeps it as a good luck Well, charm. when he gets to holes where he's hitting, hitting a stinger off the tee or a par three, he'll just pick up a tee off the tee because, you know, oh, okay. the, the tee marshals at the holes there would always place the tees that are broken around the tee mark or somewhere and you just go and pick one up but he, he, he used that when he used that tee, oh okay he, I don't, he didn't use it for 72 holes but he had the whole tee for the entire tournament and and then so he puts it in his bag as almost like a good luck charm a good omen and it stays in his bag for the rest of the at least the rest of the time that you're you caddy for correct. it which is another 11 years correct wow that that's awesome so uh, and now and, and as you mentioned 
if he was ever swinging a poorly or playing poorly, you would just say, touch that tee, you know, brush that tee as a stroke of good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, hey, who knows? It's, it gets your mind off it. Maybe, maybe it will give you a brush of good luck. So, yeah, pretty special. Um, one thing I want to ask you about before I let you go, Steve, uh, I believe that you got the, the Tigers private jet leaves St. Andrews that night and on board is you. David Duval, who he's just, you know, sort of played in the final group with in Beaton, and Stuart Appleby. What was that flight like home to uh, America? Yeah, look, it, it was, I'd have to say it was a little awkward. You know, David was <laughs> obviously, you know, he, he was right in the mix of that golf tournament, and he just completely fell apart on the back nine. And it was kind of hard, you know, Tigers celebrating sort of thing, and David's commiserating. Um but you know, like we all had a drink out of the claret jug and that, and you know, and, and, and just got on with it, sort of thing. But um, <laughs> you know, I, like I said, Tiger had more respect for David Devell than any competitor when he was playing his best. He knew he thought this guy is somebody that I could really go toe to toe with, and he inspired Tiger in that period when he was having at his best, David, to actually work harder. It was it's actually. It's somewhat of a shame that David's level didn't—he didn't sustain that level when he was at number one because I think that could have made Tiger, if if, if it's possible, even better. But he certainly played a part in Tiger Woods improving his game and working hard on his game because he took him as a serious threat. He, he pushed Tiger even further to Absolute, new heights. Absolutely. And to put you on the spot, can you remember what you drank out of the claret jug on that plane home? Oh, <laughs> was it, it was beer some, or some kind of champagne that the pilot supported? Me. I don't know. It tasted good, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you it tastes good. All right, Steve. Thanks for joining me for episode three of Chasing Majors, and I'm looking forward to the next one because it's probably the greatest battle that Tiger ever faced in the history of his career at the majors. That was Bob May at the 2000 PGA Championship. So I can't wait for you to join me next week. Yeah, another great memory. Look forward to it. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company.